What if you grew up in a belief system that told you everything around you was an illusion? What if you were told everything that happened to you, from being sick to stubbing a toe to being bullied at school, was your fault for not knowing the truth? What if you were denied even the most basic health care, from pain pills to checkups to vaccinations? How do you unravel yourself from this belief system? And what happens when you do? My name is Hillary Alexander, and this is Leaving Christian Science. Welcome to Leaving Christian Science, episode 15. Today I'm speaking with Barbara. Hi, Barbara. Hey, Hillary. <laughs> nice to see you, kind of face-to-face. -face. Yeah, sort of, kind of. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So, um, so, Barbara, why don't we start with your family history? How far back does Christian Science go in your family? Actually, not that far back. Hmm. Um, my... My mom was the first and really truthfully on her side of the family. She's basically, she was the first and only really serious Christian scientist. Um, my dad's side, it was his mom that started going to church and, and practicing and paying attention to Christian science. And then, um, then he carried on but his siblings were not his dad mm. was not so kind of we three were our own little world as I was growing up um which was kind of weird truthfully um because I always compared myself to my cousins who got to do different things and have a whole different childhood than mine yeah so. Do you know the story of um, how your mother found it? Was there like a family story about that? Yeah, there's a little bit. So I kind of, a lot of my mom's stories, I just sort of call them family legend. Yeah. Because I do think that things change with um, time and memory is what it is. And this is how I always heard it. Um when my mom was maybe 10 or 11, she wanted to go to church. Um, my, my grandfather was the one raising his kids, which is a whole another podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, and he said to her, that's fine. He, she's the youngest of four kids. So by then he was, you know, experienced at this whole single dad world. He said, that's fine, but you need to go to a church you can walk to on Sunday morning because none of us want to go with you. So the closest church was the Christian Science Church. And um, so that's where she started going. Wow. So it was literally geography determined the course uh -huh. of your life. Exactly. <laughs> that's crazy. And, but at some point, she you know, she made friends. She had friends from like that age on from Sunday school that she stayed friends with for her entire life from that experience. Um, so, you know, if it gave her a sense of community, it, that's fine. It gave her a lot of crazy too, mm. because of a belief system. But, um, but I think, you know, I give my grandfather some props for not just being like, yeah, no, you can't do that. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty remarkable that he supported her in that, in those days, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And I, you know, I, I don't know anything more about the conversation, the whole back and forth that probably happened because she, it could have taken her six months to talk him into this. I have no idea. Um, or he could have just been like, sure, honey, whatever. Because, <laughs> because if that, you know, thinking about that would have been in the early fifties. When you think about like what culture was like, it was not a big deal to send your kid walking because it was a good half mile walk from where they were. It wasn't like two blocks away. Um, if I have my locations correct of where she would have lived at that time. Um, so, you know, we would never do that with our kids, kick a 10 year old out and go, hell yeah, just pick any church and just walk to it. But in, in the early fifties, it was an easy thing. And, and, and she found something that made sense to her. And stayed with her, her whole life. Yeah. Like my mother, you know, she found it around in her late twenties, early thirties. And just, this was the thing that stuck for yep. whatever reason, you know, of all the things she tried, this was the one. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting when people, when you come from a household like you and I do, where, where it, there, it's not a multi-generational thing where you had, did you have cousins and other people? You know, I had cousins, they were in it, actually. Oh, okay. So yeah, other than the grandparents, pretty much everyone else got into it because of my mother. So okay. Well, that says a lot about the force of her uh, yeah. personality. Mm -hmm. My mom, my my mom's siblings would dabble. So so for example, um one of my uncles would or actually it's her only brother, her her brother would sometimes he would go to church sometimes he would read the lesson sermon but he was smoking and drinking and doing <laughs> all the other things in his life as well so and my grandmother uh, my mom's mom the same uh, she didn't I don't think she ever really went to church but you know I think they just were nice to this younger sibling like sure I'll do this it, what can it hurt you know, but they didn't take it in as a great thing, particularly. Yeah, I always wondered what my, especially my grandmother, uh, what she thought of all of this, because she was a very non-religious person. And then her daughter becomes super religious. Yeah. And I, you know, I often wonder, because I, I heard that she was supportive of it. And I often wonder, you know, if my sister and I had ever had any severe medical issues, which thankfully we did not. Mm -hmm. If she would have changed her opinion and been like, why are you doing this? <laughs> right. You can get yeah. away with it as long as you're healthy. Nobody yeah. really knows that there's actual, a, actually a danger here. They don't see the emotional damage. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. And um, um, my dad's situation, though, was somewhat different. Um, and his mom actually probably did die because of uh, sort of that Christian science neglect. Mm. Um, he was, I think about 10 or 12, and then he had two younger sisters. So his youngest sister was so young. I don't know that she really remembered her mom that much. The middle sister definitely did. Um, but she, my grandmother on my dad's side had tuberculosis. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, so that would have been in the sort of middle 40s. And she went to, you know, you could, when you had TB, you could go to this, like, they called them sanitariums. And you would go and they would do whatever treatment was available at the time for it. It was so different from how we treat, you know, cases today. But um, my grandmother went, she accepted no treatment. She used like whatever Christian science she was going to do. Um, she just, the reason why she went was because um, she didn't want her kids to get TB. Oh, yeah. it's so contagious. Yeah. So, I mean, thank you, because <laughs> if that had happened, I wouldn't be here, right? Because my dad would have gotten it. But, um, but then she did come back and was declared not contagious and passed away a couple years later from probably things that were, you know, residual to the TB. Don't really know. Because well, that's, so that's such an interesting proof of like the disconnect in Christian science where she understood that she could harm her children, that this thing that she had was real and contagious and could be harmful. But then when it came to her own self-care, she couldn't take any right. treatment for it. So it's like, it's kind of real and it's kind of not. Yeah. And, and I mean, truthfully, there really wasn't if people that had TB in that age, it, it was not good for them no matter what they did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it, my grandparents had varying degrees of exposure to Christian science. I, I meant to also say my mom's dad went to church with my mom for a couple of years. The reason he did is so that she could meet a man so that she could get married. He knew that that's the community that she would choose from. And he wanted that man to feel like she had a normal family. Mm. And these are all things that I've learned from talking with my older cousins or my aunts and uncles. Um, my parents really never talked about this. It was mm. just, you know, secrets we keep. And there's so many. So many. Christian Science is full of secrets, full of secrets. Yeah. And that, there, I mean, that's a probably a theme for all the podcasts that you've talked about. Some people are more, you know, kind of overt about knowing what the secrets are or seeing them in the community, but all of us know they're there. We yeah. do. Yeah. A lot of secrets, a lot of shame. That's a big, mm -hmm. big part of it, either feeling oh, shameful yourself or putting shame on other people <laughs> right and also um I just got really tired of being in the world of guilt yeah you know it's the, the shame and the guilt that go together they're a pair um I just felt a lot of that so yeah I see that for sure yeah some years ago I remember talking to a former Catholic who who used those terms you know of shame guilt blame Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, that's her thing. That's like a Catholic thing. That's not us. We don't have that. Yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah. yeah. But it's in, I mean, I think it's a piece of every religion, yeah. every organized religion, because there we're trying to get in a, in an organized system. We're trying to get people 
through, you know, some kind of steps of point A to point B. And if they if they go this way instead of that way, well, what are you going to do to pull them back? It's just, I think in a way it's human nature, but it just gets really amplified in that tiny closed sort of. Yeah. Well, and, you have, and every religion has these really stringent rules around your behavior. And in Christian science, it even gets into your thoughts. Well, I'm sure a lot of religions also gets into your thoughts. And sure. how do you curb behavior? Well, a lot of times it's by utilizing tools like shame <laughs> and guilt, Absolutely. you know? Absolutely, for sure. So, yeah, I think um, I think my parents were really damaged by some of the things that happened in their childhood that were entirely separate from Christian science. Yeah. Just family situations. And so they latched onto something that felt like loving kind of father, mother, God, that whole sort of sense of um, this is a caring community. Um, and then, you know, you just get smacked in the butt <laughs> along the way because it's not as caring as you thought when you were 11 and showed up at the at the Sunday school door and said, yeah. hi, I want to be here. Or it is as long as you toe the line. 100%. You know, 100%. the yep. minute you want to seek medical care, <laughs> look <Yep>. out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the really formative things that happened um, to my parents was a um, couple years after they were married and a couple years before I was born, they had a baby who was very, um, basically really deformed when she was born. She lived less than 24 hours. Mm. Um, she was born missing a big part of her brainstem. It's called anencephaly. And um, I don't know that it's any more or less common today than it was back then, but we can tell what's happening in a way that they had no idea. Um, so my mom had actually delivered this child with the help of her brother-in-law, who was an OBGYN. Um, her sister had married this, this man and, um, they kind of encouraged my mom to get that medical care, the prenatal things that in 1962 were whatever they were. Um, so my mom has this baby in the hospital and this, and, and she's, you know, just tremendously, unfortunately born in, in a condition that didn't support life. Yeah. So she passed away and my parents were, of course, devastated my mom to the end of her days blamed it on the medical care I should mm. never have had a baby in that situation I was born at home with a Christian science nurse and a doctor who would come to the house um and I just cannot imagine the emotions that would have been involved in in that whole period of time between the birth of that first baby and me being born just the fear the yeah. desire to have kids the 
fear when she was actually pregnant. What's going to happen? Am I going to be, you know, is it going to happen again? Yeah. Going to survive. And right. And I just, I, I think it colored the, and I'm an only child. So that also tells you something. Um, I've heard from people in my family that my mom was like, I can't do that again. So in her twenties, she was still feeling those emotions. She was still connected to, and my dad too, to sort of what I would feel like is kind of normal, like young married parental childbearing years, behavior and emotions. Um, and a lot of that changed just the longer they were deep into the church, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think people understand unless they've been through it or been really close to people who've been through it, that <laughs> how incredibly traumatizing the whole fertility, pregnancy, birth scenario is for so many families. Yeah. It, it's not, it doesn't always just happen all good and happy. And, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of things that go horribly wrong and a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and emotional suffering and not being yeah. able to get pregnant again when you've just lost a baby. I've had a lot of friends in that scenario. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very intense. Yeah. It is. And, and think about how intense that is for us today with all the things we know because of modern medicine and science and roll it back almost 60 years. They didn't know anything compared yeah. to what we know. So not to make it any less valid, all the feelings and the difficulties that people go through today, because science doesn't take away feelings. Yeah. You know? Um, and sometimes it, we actually have more because we have more knowledge. But yeah, I I just didn't really understand until I was maybe in my 50s um, or maybe like late 40s what that must have been like. Yeah. You know? Yeah, my mother gave birth in 1962 to my sister. And obviously they both survived, thankfully. But it was a very, very traumatic birth experience which she talked about a lot very traumatic for her yeah 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 and then she waited quite some time yeah 10 years yeah before she had me so yeah yeah Yeah. so it took a little while for the uh the sort of fuzzy memory stuff to set in but clearly not if she was still talking about how difficult that first birth was yeah and yeah. she was she was not a Christian scientist at the time. She was when she had me, but I think she was very new for her. So she did have me in a hospital, actually mm-hmm. a Seventh-day Adventist hospital of all things, <laughs> which I always thought was kind of funny. Um, yeah. But yeah, birth trauma, that's, that's yeah, that's, it's a thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, so one of the things I, I think about with, with when I think about sort of my like my my origin story with Christian science is that my parents went through a lot of really traumatic things between the ages of zero and 30. Um, and one of the things that we we talk about now in psychology is this thing called adverse childhood events. It's sometimes referred, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes referred to as ACEs. Mm. 
And so you can take a quiz, you can go online and you can take a quiz that, that answer a whole bunch of questions. Sorry, my voice, I knew it was gonna, and this was like way sooner than I thought it would give out. I'll have some, <laughs> I'll have some too. <laughs> um, so if you take this quiz and you score really high, then you have had a lot of adverse childhood experiences. What they're finding is because they're going back and they're studying the relationship of those ACEs with how your health is today as an adult in our 40s and 50s and 60s and beyond. The more ACEs that you have, the higher your score, the more difficult like your disease history and sort of the physical life that you lead later on is likely to be. You're more likely to have, you know, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, whatever. Um, and I think what happened, which I, which is, it helps me make sense of the whole thing. My parents' ACEs scores are really high and that's how I was raised. But somehow when I do it, my ACEs score is pretty low, kind of moderately low. Um, so somehow they were able to turn that around and provide me with um, <clears throat> what I sort of always felt like was pretty good childhood. Hmm. Um, there were things, because it's what happens when you're a kid, but I didn't figure out until maybe the last 10 years and understanding this whole school of thought with ACEs that I grew up with such deeply damaged parents, their, their emotions, their heart and soul. And, and they never really were able to find all their answers from Christian science, but damn, they were going to hang on to that as their life raft to the level that I think they were like addicted to it. Yeah. You know, because it's the thing that you think is keeping you afloat. So you're terrified to let go. And, you know, that was hard for them when I was like, F this life raft, I'm out of here. Yeah, you know? I bet it was sort of incomprehensible to yeah. them. It did not feel like that to me, but they could never let it go. They never did. Yeah, so. I've I've taken that quiz. <laughs> yeah. and I have yeah. a moderate to high range of childhood trauma and I think my mother would probably score higher than me yeah and I definitely yeah I, all of that really resonates with me that that she I I absolutely think she was addicted to Christian science yeah that's why she kept trying to like kick it and not and couldn't and always went back to it you know yeah. and then finally yeah. died of it <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And my parents too. I mean, it's it their entire last maybe five, five or 10 years would have been so different. And it would have been at a much older age, they would have lived longer, if they had been interested and willing to step out just a little. Yeah, or to seek out real therapy instead of this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I started, I think I saw my first therapist when I was probably tw 22 and a half, maybe 23, something like that, on the encouragement of a really dear friend that I'm still in touch with, 
um, who was, you know, she was also raised in Christian science. She's 20 some years older than me. And she was just like, Barb, you have to do this. Mm. You, you need to start talking about this outside of this Christian science community. You need, cause I was struggling with depression. Couldn't get out of bed in the morning. You know, my mom, oh, this is such a weird story. My mom was really bad at boundaries. She didn't understand that me, adult, out of the house, did not need a phone call to wake me up in the morning. <laughs> but I actually really did need it because I was so depressed I couldn't get out of bed. And it was this weird sort of vicious cycle thing. But thank gosh, therapy and antidepressants, mm. you know, really helped me figure some stuff out. But I, that, and I, I mean, and I've gone back, I think I, you know, every few years things happen and I'll reach back out. Sometimes I, I would have the same relationship and I would see somebody every couple of years. There was one lady I probably had that relationship with for maybe 12 or 15 years. Mm. And, Did that know. first therapist put it together that Christian science had something to do with it? Like, were you cognizant of that at the time or did, did that come later? That came later, I think. Yeah, I it, a lot of what I was trying to figure out at that point really was the whole mom boundaries thing. And, we, and I never put it in the context of this is a religion that really doesn't have boundaries. Christian science wants past, wants to be past your boundaries into everything you're thinking, right? So as a parent, my mom didn't really have a lot of great modeling of how to be a mom because her mom was not in the house uh, from the time she was four until she was maybe 22. So she didn't really grow up with a mom um, and they reconnected later. But my mom just, she was just making it up as she went along. And when you live in that belief system that really doesn't have a sense of, you know, boundaries where it's like, how do you explain this? Hillary, help me with this. <laughs> if, if Christian science wants to talk about and think about and be, you know, in control of how we think, to me, that's having no boundaries. Yeah. And so that was my, like, probably my biggest topic in my first, um, in my first therapy and her need, my mom's need to control me because again, like I sort of, I think about Christian science as high demand. It demands a lot of its congregants and high control in, in that kind of religious setting. Um, and that got carried through in my household, you know, beyond just, you must read the lesson every morning. Yeah, there was definitely a lack of privacy. And I guess you would say agency in my childhood. And that seems to be a pretty common thread where we just weren't respected as individuals, which again is kind of typical of the time. I mean, I was a kid in the seventies. You were a kid yeah. earlier than that. And 
children's yeah. having children having any sort of rights or individuality wasn't really a thing in those days anyway. But I think sure. I think Christian science definitely made that worse. You know, you couldn't even have your your private thoughts. Yeah. opinions about things you know exactly exactly I there was an awful lot of you need to just toe the line here you know this is what we believe in this house and I will not have you doing a b or c and mm. I you know I never think about myself as a rebel child but I push the envelope a lot with her and she probably thought I was being very yeah. <laughs> but you know at, I think in the big scheme of things when I talk to other people about their childhoods I was a piece of cake but her perspective on that was so different she expected me to fit into the box you know and that's that's what this you know all of your guests had a box in their household that they were expected to fit into. Yeah. Yeah. So at what point in your childhood did you question? Like when when did the cracks start to show or, or was it always you were never really that <laughs> in it? I'm curious. Yeah, I was pretty in it. I was pretty good. Like I would I would sort of go back and say it's a goody two shoes kind of. I really wanted to please her. Yeah and be a good kid and um it seemed like it seemed like a good path it seemed okay to me to do that but like I said I also really wanted to be able to check out whatever book I wanted to from the library and read it I didn't really want my mom to like while I was at school go in and read all my books and be like you know there's this passage and it's got sex in it Oh my gosh. So she yeah. would do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Don't get me started on <laughs> sex. Um, but the and and also I think because so even when I was under 10, I would go stay with my grandmother. My grandmother was a chain smoker. Mine was too. <laughs> yeah. So so I would hang out in her house and smell the Benson and Hedges and, you know, right. I know her brand 40, whatever years later, I still, she's been gone that long. I still know her brand. Um, and so I was around a lot of, you know, family members who, where I, I guess I was exposed to some of those things. Um, and I, sometimes I would think to myself I wonder what it would be like to to have a cigarette so <laughs> I'm a dummy what do I do but smoke them in the house oh no like I was also so sheltered and and such a goody two-shoes that my mom caught me in like one smoke and she was freaked out and livid and I got in so much trouble I remember one time getting in trouble for lying she caught me in the lie because and you know what it was and I, this is like all coming back to me it's so weird how that happens memory when you start talking about stuff I want to think I was maybe seven or eight 
and I was walking home from school with my girlfriends, none of my friends on my street went to my church. Everybody that I was friends with at church lived in other, like other, like they went to other schools, even if they went, even if they lived in the same school district as me, which they didn't all. But so I, you know, I would walk home with the girl whose dad was a Presbyterian minister. My down the street friends were, we had a Mormon girl, we had a um, Catholic, couple Catholic families, um, bunch of different, you know, all different stuff. Well, we were talking about what church we went to one day, and I told them I was Presbyterian. <laughs> and my mom found out. Because probably so-and-so kid went to their parents and said, Barbie said she's Presbyterian. And and the, the parent called my parent or they were just chatting over tea or whatever. And my mom found out and I was in deep doo-doo, for, mostly for lying, but also because she was really mad that I couldn't stand up to being a Christian Zionist. And... And that became kind of a theme for my is, life. Is that why you think you said that? Because you just were sort of ashamed and didn't want to yeah. not fit in? Yeah. yeah. I mean, going to this weird church where you had all these weird beliefs absolutely makes you other. You know, we never called it that back then. But but yeah, it was definitely like the odd kid out. Um, I didn't feel like that at at church, but for sure in my neighborhood. Um, and I wanted to fit in. Yeah, children do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I think we made, I think I made that choice just like on the spur of the moment. But my mom spent a lot of time over the decades telling me I wasn't really strong enough to be a Christian Zionist, <laughs> that I couldn't stick to it, that I wasn't, you know, that I was always influenced by other people, hence the smoking and the the racy books that I wanted to read or whatever, this feeling like I was walking on that truth versus maybe not. Um, and and I honestly think, looking back at it, what makes me the strongest is that I left that life raft, that I decided it wasn't for me, that that was one of my, what I feel like is one of my first really independent adult decisions was to say, oh, I can't do this. Um, so this was my really long, oh my gosh, you asked me like 10 minutes ago, <laughs> how'd you get out? And like, well, we are, and I'm like, a long story. Out. Yeah. But it's so true. Like it, it, we're always told that Christian science takes such guts and determination and strength and intellect and blah, 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 and all these positive things. It takes all these positive things to be in Christian science. That's mm -hmm. what we're told. And like you were shamed for supposedly not having those qualities when yeah. in fact you did have them and that's how you got out. And the people that stayed in are the ones who didn't, you know? You know, and whatever, I can't judge them. But for me, yeah. I mean, for me to stand up to my mom was took huge 
amounts of chutzpah and strength and just, you know, I don't even, honestly, looking back, I'm like, wow, how did I even do that? Yeah. How, you know, and I, and I think I said to you when we were talking about recording together, I'm not really sure how I turned out halfway normal. (laughs) I mean, I can't claim to be fully normal because nobody is, but you know, how I, I'm grateful, right? Grateful is a trigger word for a lot of us because it was like such a big thing to be grateful all the time. Yeah. Of church, but um, yeah, that for the people that I got got to spend time with, like my grandmother who had she had a lot of flaws. My a lot of my family that wasn't Christian scientists, they have a lot of flaws, but they felt so human to me. And in some ways, it took a long time for me to understand just how human my parents really were. Yeah. I had to get get mature. And I think that's a normal part of growing up and individuating and being an adult, like a fully adult adult. So, um, okay, wait, let me go. Let me look here and see what I was thinking about. I really... I think all those little rebellions I did were my little steps away. Mm-hmm. But first really big step. So I went to Principia High School. I went to Principia College. I was there for, I think, maybe three measles outbreaks. But I know for sure two. One in high school when I got the measles. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one in college, which happened in my senior year. So that year, which would have been 1985, the college and the health department in Illinois um, decided that because of the the timing of everything, um, kids wanted to go home for spring break, but we were quarantined. So they would let us off campus for spring break if we got vaccinated. So dang, if I didn't get the shot, because I had, like, I had job interviews. I was finishing my senior year. I needed to know what I was doing after graduation. I had stuff already set up. Um, I knew the person I had a job interview with because I had worked in his organization over Christmases and, and summer breaks and stuff. Um, And I knew that if I blew off the interview, I'd never get another one. And so I just, I put my life, like my actual decisions about my future ahead of the religion. Um, And I think that was probably my first really big step. It was the first time I consciously got vaccinated. Um, I got vaccinated because it was the law in Pennsylvania before I went to kindergarten. So I have the the scar that, you know, comes from the 60s smallpox, I think it is. Yeah, I was just Um, talking about that with my kids the other day because my sister has that. I don't. Yeah, Yeah. I think think the vaccines changed. It has. Yeah, I'm pretty sure (laughs) I've gotten a vaccine for that, but it doesn't make that same scar that it did in the early days, yeah. 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 It's kind of funny. So, so 
yeah, we um, just having that, those actually two measles experiences um, really changed me. Um, another thing happened. So the 1985 measles epidemic at Principia College, three people died, two students, and um, one child of a staff member. Well, as it turns out, the staff member was my stepsister. Mm. The child was someone I knew. And the way it was handled, the way it was handled with me personally, considering she was a part of my family, I got so angry because it was just done anything you could possibly do wrong. I found out in an auditorium full of hundreds of people mm. that my stepniece had died. Nobody thought, nobody thought to pull me aside and say, look, I have some really bad news for you. And to let me sort of absorb and process that even for two minutes. Yeah. Before I had to go to this assembly and sit there, you know, and yet they had told other, um, her cousin, who was another one of my step nieces already knew. So they told her, but they forgot that I was part of that little family step family unit and and that it, I was old enough to be pissed off about that yeah and I'm I'm still pissed off about yeah. it yeah, All yeah. yeah. So it was just crappy of them to do um and it was horrible that this young woman's life she was she was like a tween she wasn't quite a teenager um, ended so young yeah. and same with the students who were older, but still, I mean, it's a preventable disease. There's, and in fact, there's measles outbreaks in the news again, it comes around. Apparently I was reading some stuff from an epidemiologist that I follow and they're the people who, who look at public health trends. And, um, so apparently there's like a five-year cycle mm. for measles. And what the, this year is that sort of five-year time period. So that was kind of my first, my first foray beyond just mild rebellion to being like, nope, I'm good. I'll take some medicine. Thanks very much. Yeah. yeah. One of the things, speaking of measles outbreaks that really changed my mind about the role vaccines play in our lives is the podcast This American Life did uh, probably 20 plus years ago. They did a story about a measles outbreak in San Diego mm. among sort of hippie unvaccinated. I don't know if hippie's the right word, but, you know, sort of wellness people yeah. who wouldn't vaccinate their children. And sure enough, this outbreak happens and just the way they they plotted through what everyone in the town in the area had to go through to protect themselves because obviously you couldn't take your child to daycare the school you couldn't go to school you had to you mm -hmm. know working parents like at the last second oh my god what do we do 
And yeah. that's when it really sunk in because I was not vaccinated at the time still, even though I was out of Christian science, I hadn't taken that step to just go to a doctor and get checked out. And I was still yeah. kind of not wanting to deal with any of that. And that's mm-hmm. when it dawned on me that, you know, vaccines are for the group. Right. I mean, it will protect you mostly. Of course, no vaccines are hundred percent, but it's really right. about being a team player and protecting your community even if it's just protecting them from inconvenience, like that's a good enough reason. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. That town near San Diego was just sort of the micro, the micro experience of what we went through in 2020 when we, something yeah. came up and we didn't have a vaccine for it. And we had to like, as a world, we locked down. And all those years ago, that was just in a small community in San Diego, and it's the same principle that applies to people today. Because a lot of these, um, a lot of these outbreaks with measles and stuff, really, they happen because somebody knows they're sick and they get on an airplane. Yeah. What? And they're not thinking about protecting other people at that point. Yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, I, I I'm very ashamed of this now but that was sort of my mentality was like oh I'll just take the risk I don't care mm-hmm. but yes yeah, not just about you and that really hit me I was like you know what I've been yeah. going about this all wrong <laughs> yeah. yeah well I think that's one of the things that's really good about telling these stories and talking about these things and that obviously made like it helped you turn that corner mm-hmm. um and and I think, you know, everybody's stories can do that for someone else. You yeah. just never know who that someone else is. Yeah, right? yeah. Just getting an, uh, someone else's life experience can yeah. really shine a light on your own, you know. So you're yeah. yet another person who survived the measles outbreaks at Principia. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately lost yeah. a family member. That's really sad. Yeah, it is really sad. And um you know, it just, you, you, you have to find a way to go on when that kind of stuff happens in your life. And, um, I think it was probably one of my earliest experiences with how crappy our country is and how really crappy Christian scientists are with the whole concept of death and grief. Mm. And, and we all, shared a lot of stories about how hard that is you know yeah do you remember what that announcement was like when they told people in the auditorium i don't really remember like the exact words or how anything was said um but it was and i don't remember if they were telling us about all three people or if they were just telling us about Jenny. Mm. So that, you know, um, so what happens to our brains and our emotions at that time, you like have this sort of shutdown while you go into a little bit of shock. Yeah. And so even all these years later, I don't really remember. Yeah. That's not surprising. Yeah. Yeah. I remember some of that, but I don't remember their words. I just, I mean, honestly, I think it's kind of weird to gather every single student 
all together. Why would you not just have meetings in each of the, the dorms or something? I mean, we basically all lived in these kind of what I would sort of call a pod of dorms. So why wouldn't they do it that way? I don't yeah, know. a little less you know. clinical. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it's it that would have given each group of kids a chance to ask questions, but clearly they didn't want that. Yeah, that's why you do that. Yeah, in this huge group is so that because nobody in front of five hundred of their peers is going to go, you know, and ask whatever is a meaningful question to them. Yeah. They're going to, like you have talked about with other guests, just do the whole stuff your feelings down. Try to figure out how to absorb that, you know. Deal with it alone without any sense of community or help or. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, basically, I'm sure we were told to go read your lesson, turn to the books, pray, call a practitioner if you need it to all the sort of standard steps of what you do when there's a crisis in Christian science. Yeah. You know, which is more or less five ways to ignore it. Yeah. How to shut this down. So I don't feel anything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah. And I have to say too, I, and this is another I'll try not to make this like a hugely long topic, but I do have to say another one of the main reasons why I stopped and it really happened very similar time frame. I was probably a junior, senior in college. Um, my parents did take me to the dentist when I was a kid. Um, I had like every six months, I got my teeth cleaned-ish, kind of six months-ish. Um, I think I even remember the dentist talking them into some fluoride treatments. And I think the reason for the, the, they wanted to coat my teeth with something because I was having cavities like crazy. And every time you have a cavity, right? They have to drill and fill it and the whole thing. My parents never let me have Novocaine. Oh no. Mm -hmm. Brutal. Yeah. So when you have a tiny little cavity, it's not, I mean, you, you, you just, I'm this little kid and I'm having to learn how to suck it up with so much pain, even though like intellectually I can look back and go, well, it really wasn't that long. Um, but I had a really horrific cavity when I was in college, still kind of under my mom's thumb we, it was kind of interesting. We were going to a dentist at that time in St. Louis who was, he was a legit dentist. He taught at the dental school, the whole thing, married to a Christian science lady whose kids went to school with at a print. So I don't remember his last name, but um, he did this filling, this ginormous filling for me. Um, and I, I mean, I've talked about it with my dentist since then. And it really, honestly, it was almost my whole tooth. Mm. Uh, it wasn't one of the tiny teeth. It was going back towards the molars. Um, and he did it. 
according to my mom's wishes, even though I don't think he really wanted to. No, no became. But I had more than one tooth that needed to be filled. So the next time I went, guess what? He said to me, okay, open your mouth, Barb. I was like, <laughs> could not open my mouth. Thought that I was opening my mouth just fine. He literally went out to my mom and he said, listen, you need to let me give her this Novocaine because she really does need this filling. And if I can help her get the filling with less pain, you know, it'll be a good thing and it's a win-win and whatever he said, he talked my mom into it. Mm. Thank God. Yeah. I've never gotten anything done without Novocaine since because it's miraculous. Yeah. Compared to laying there with tears running down your face, you know, just ridiculous. Um, so those two things, you know, some compassion, truthfully being shown to me by this really kind dentist who wasn't he was kind of used to christian zionists because yeah, a lot of familiar yeah yeah but the crazy part is my mom at that i'm trying to think a couple of years earlier she had had um a really bad car accident where she got rear-ended we didn't wear seatbelts the way we do now yeah. So her face went into the steering column. She lost both of her two top front teeth. Um, and they clearly, they couldn't put them back in. So she had implants put in. I can guarantee you, she did not do that without Novocaine. And yet two years later, she's still figuring that her, you know, young daughter could do this. It, that kind of, like hypocrisy <laughs> yeah, it is thank you that is exactly what it is of like I'm gonna go do this and but my kid can't because I want them to be a better Christian scientist than I was at their age or whatevs whatever the <sighs> the thought process was I know I've got to say that fills me with so much rage <laughs> yes rage yes. Because I, first of all, how on earth as a medical professional, do you submit a patient, especially a child to yeah. needless agony and just sit there and do it while this child is sitting there with tears pouring down their face? I know. What is wrong with dentists who do that? Just because the parent, does, I mean, I know. I, 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 I can't. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I know. And you know, it's really interesting. Um, I had occasion now, it's probably about 10 years ago to talk with someone who um, one of the things that she's done in her career is consulting work with dental practices. And so she was really deep in that field, but she wasn't like a dental professional for, for the whole time. She was working in a sort of consulting capacity and she and I were just chatting one day, you know, I don't know even how it came up. 
But she looked at me when I told her what I just told you, my story. She looked at me and she said, that was dental abuse. That was child abuse. Yes. Said, you need to understand that, you know, do whatever you need to do with that information. But that was not benign neglect. Nope. At all. That was abusive. And it was kind of a shock for me because we didn't grow up thinking that this kind of stuff was abusive. Yeah. But we look back now and we think, so maybe that's why I couldn't go to the dentist late in the day. I had to go first thing in the morning before coffee, before I was awake, Mm. because I had to be a little numb. You know, now I can go later in, in the day, but I also have had my own implants and I'm telling you, they put me completely out. It cost me way more money, but I tried it with just Novocaine a couple of times and I can't. And I, and I encourage people, no matter what their childhood experiences were, like it's actually a really big surgery to have a tooth pulled, yeah. to have an implant put in, um, all that kind of stuff. Find an oral surgeon who will actually put you completely out. They sedate you just enough. It doesn't take them that long to do it, but you remember nothing. It's, you know, it makes a huge difference. But yeah. We laugh and we smile when we tell these stories, but they really, I do think it's legit that we should both be feeling rage about this as we have. Yeah. Not just against the parents that inflict this on their children, but the dentists that go along with it. Mm -hmm. Why would you go along with this? Again, Mm -hmm. your dentist, again, was familiar with that. And I'm sure his whole thought process was, well, I need to respect their religious wishes and I'm not going to. Right. But that's not, that's a terrible priority. (laughs) Well, I do give him credit for finally going out. Yeah. Only did it because I couldn't open my mouth. Yeah. And let me tell you, I have been a teeth clencher since I've been in my 20s. It's I'm grinding my teeth to powder. Yeah. Um, It's not good for my jaws, nothing. And I, all the therapy and massage and my muscles and the whole thing, I haven't been able to figure out how to stop it. And I do think it goes back to stuff like that. It must. Yeah. So, So as parents... Or as adults with life experience, if there was one thing I I wish I could tell my younger self, you know, it'd be like, don't put up with this. Fight a little harder. Yeah. You know, it's so, so hard for children to advocate for themselves. It's so hard. It's hard for adults to advocate for themselves. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I have a little story, not entirely similar, but tangential to that as far as going through medical things with pain control pain help (laughs) this is sort of a controversial opinion slash topic but 
I've had two babies and in both instances, I had many people around me discouraging me from getting an epidural. Mm -hmm. And I even had a doula on the second birth who gave me this little printout that had a list of all of the negative things that would happen if I had an epidural. And one of them was, you will not be able to bond with your baby. You won't be able to breastfeed. Like, patently false fear-mongering nonsense. And yeah. I'm very proud to say, because I was not a young mom, I was 39 and 41, that in both instances, I was like, I am having an epidural. These are my wishes. Yes. <laughs> and my wish also is that you don't try to talk me out of it when I'm vulnerable. Yeah. And I'm sad to say that the doula did try to talk me out of it, <laughs> even though I asked her not to. Yeah. And my my exact words were, I've had quite enough of this bullshit. <laughs> I am getting the epidural. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I'm so glad that you yeah. did what was right for you. Yeah. And, and you know, it was neither of the epidurals worked completely, but they certainly took the edge off and allowed me to continue with the labor and nothing bad happened. Now, bad things occasionally do happen like anything, especially it's something going into your spine. I'm not going to try to say epidurals oh. are this magical, perfect thing. No, but not. you know, not bonding with the baby, not breastfeeding. That's patently false fear mongering from this like wellness nonsense community, you know? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. not about to subject myself needlessly to agony for what? No, I, I was like, I've done enough of that in my life, actually. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, like I said, I'm so glad that you did what was right for you and you did that advocating because it is really hard to learn how to phrase those things and how to stand up for yourself. And um, particularly when you grow up in a belief system where you're basically always told that someone knows better than you. I mean, that's what church and religion is about. Whether you have a priest standing up there or whether it's your mother, the practitioner, or whether it's just the sort of cultural conditioning of repetitive information um it, you we you don't really learn how to say no this is not right for me yeah so. and one thing i've learned from studying <laughs> cults uh and and religions too is that a lot of what we're taught is how to not listen to your gut and not listen to your instinct and turn that off in favor of this other thing. And that's something people really need to be aware of. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. The, um, I was talking with some friends of mine about coming on the podcast to talk to you. And, um, a few of them are, um, psychotherapists or licensed clinical social workers. Um, so they kind of, we <clears throat> sometimes talk about the way things work neurologically in our brains, mm. your brain makes neuro pathways. You walk. It's like the way a path gets developed in the forest. The more people that walk that path, the more it becomes a path. 
So in your brain, it's the same thing. The more you do the thing where you're just listening to the, what someone is telling you and following along and, and kind of trying to make them happy or to, to receive whatever recognition the, you know, belief system puts at the end of the trail. Um, the more you do that, the harder it is to get your brain to stop doing that pathway. So when you leave a cult or a high demand religion, like there's all these things where your, your brain just keeps wanting to go back on that magical thinking, something can solve my whatever problem I have that's not really science-based. We just, yeah. it's a thing to, to stop, to re, to sort of reprogram our brains. So we yeah, don't do that. I love the term deprogramming because that is what it feels like. You know, for me coming out of Christian science, one of the most difficult things to overcome, which I, I feel I have successfully at this point, was the feeling that anything bad that happened to me was brought on by me in some way and that it was my fault. It was really hard to undo that. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that's to some degree, we probably will have that in an ongoing way our whole lives. Um, even if it's just that tiny thought that flits through your mind <laughs> and you let it go and you go, get the heck out of here. It's still there. I find that happens sometimes. You know, I look at myself before I look at someone else and go, well, they did this crazy thing. They did this thing that didn't make sense. And it's not whatever. Um, instead of, and what I would be more likely to say is, oh my gosh, I must have upset them somehow. You know? So yeah, we, we, it's like, it's definitely a holdover. Yeah. Yeah. The feeling of constant blame and, and fault. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that really, I mean, ultimately that and the fact that I really never could stay awake in church um, <laughs> kept me that those things, the blame, the shame, the guilt, the sort of overwhelm of the weird language that was part of how science and health is written, um, all those things were like the last final nails in the coffin with the church, you know, and yeah. watching people. I also started to see, and this would have been, let me think about time frames, kind of like late 80s, early 90s, I started to see more people in church be less what we would call radically reliant, right? My family was really like, this is your only pathway. But I watched people that were my contemporaries or people that I respected who were going to doctors, but they were sweeping it under the rug, feeling the shame, hiding it, keeping the secrets. And that I just realized at some point, maybe that was partially the therapy that I had done at that point. It's just not healthy. It's not healthy for how you think or feel or your like, I hate to say it this way, but your soul. Like, 
I don't mean any of the religious implications of the soul. I just mean that that piece of you that makes you innately who you are. Yeah. You can't really access that if you are just more focused on the blame and the shame and the guilt. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we're, and this, this is the thing that sounds so crazy to non-Christian scientists, <laughs> the fact that you have to, within your church community, pretend you're not seeing a doctor when you are. Oh yeah. Like how nuts is that? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I ended up falling in love with a man who lived in an entirely different state than where I had been living. Um, we've been now married 20, almost 29 years. Um, no, he's not a Christian scientist, but I used the, the move from that place that was close to my mom, that I had been a church member and lived for, you know, eight-ish years. Um, I used that as my, as my out. I'm going to come to this new place where this lovely man is, and I am not going to any of the church functions. I don't want to know any Christian scientists. I'm just going to cut the cord, basically. And that was, that was, that helped. Yeah. I mean, sometimes a venue change can be enormously helpful. I mean, right now I'm celebrating the 31st anniversary of my moving from New York City to Los Angeles. And as much as I didn't realize it at the time, I now know that because I left very abruptly and it was very sort of sudden and violent and, you know, intense. I just sort of fled one day and just didn't come back. And I was 20 years old at the time. And I realize now that I was really leaving her. I was escaping my mother and I was going to a place that had never had anything to do with her. That was not about my family in any way. And mm -hmm. I just... I had to be free. I had to go somewhere where I could be free and be a new person. You know, that's what yeah. that, that's what that move was really about. I didn't know it at the time, but I, I see it that way now, you know? Yeah. The, the hindsight of, yeah. of the maturity and the time and, and the work that you've done to, to completely, you know, to pull yourself further and further away from that part of your life, that Christian science part. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, I think I probably moved for some of the similar reasons. Um, she and I had a better relationship when we didn't live in the same town mm. because of the boundaries thing. Yeah. You know, um, not that she thought it was okay that I moved a couple thousand miles away and um, moved in with the man who would become my husband. She freaked out. Of course she did because I wasn't married. She wanted me to come up here, get married the day that I arrived and then move into his house. <laughs> right. Like, no, <laughs> yeah. that's not gonna work for me. You know, we got married maybe six months later and that was fine, but she was, oh my gracious. She spent a lot of my childhood telling me, and I think I said this before, that I was so influenced by other people. And what I didn't realize was she was upset because I learned that I didn't want her to influence me. And 
to the point that I would ignore everyone else. It's a control thing again. Yeah. She wanted to be in control. Yep. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, and we continue to struggle with that even when she was really needing my help at the end of her life. Um, in the last 10 years, she really, there were so many reasons why she just, different things that she couldn't do for herself. And so she was constantly needing me to do this or that. And, and, and we, there, you know, try to find the balance because at that point I was much older, much more established in my life, but that the struggle for control never stopped. It just never did. Yeah. Sadly, in our case, <clears throat> that controlling instinct, my my mother put all on my older sister, mm. which is really unfortunate. She was the one that got the brunt of that. Yeah. You know, constantly needing things, constantly needing help and financial help and do this for me, do that for me. And you owe me this and yeah, terrible yeah. situation for my sister. Yeah. 100%. And I didn't have a sibling. So I, even if I had been able to sort of divide the, the duties, if you will, um, you know, it, it just, it wouldn't have happened because there was no one, but like in your case, it doesn't always happen that way anyways. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a different relationships, different kids, yeah. you know, have relationships with that parent. So, yeah. But I do have to say, you know, having talked a bunch about my mom, I just want to acknowledge that my dad, despite the fact that he struggled with, he actually probably struggled with addiction more than my mom, not addiction to, to any of the substances that we would typically consider like like alcohol or drugs or cigarettes or anything like that. But every hobby that he had became an addictive endeavor. Hmm. Uh, and church was an addictive endeavor. Despite all those struggles, he was the parent who was able to love me who, for who I was. He would come and stay with us for three weeks. He it didn't bother him what was happening with my life in terms of Christian science, he sometimes would ask, he sometimes would hope and wish that I would come back to the church, but he always loved and appreciated me for me. And I was really grateful to have that balance since That's I great. had so much control stuff with her. Honestly, she would have been like that, even if it hadn't been for Christian science yeah. because of her childhood, Yeah, because of the, the household that she grew up in, I think that would have, that would have happened anyway. Um, but my dad really had a sense of, of compassion and deep love for me. And it helped so much. Um, and it was absolutely like when you talked to Jody, it was absolutely devastating for me when he died. Mm. You know, I was 40 um, just really coming into my own and he was gone. You know, we didn't have 
a lot of warning. There were some things, but we didn't have a lot of warning. And it was, it was, I mean, other than getting divorced when I was 30, it was the most difficult thing at that point of my life. Um, but, you know, you, you get through stuff and you look back and you say, you know, this parenting might not have been perfect, but it was more what I needed than that parenting. And somehow I still came out okay. <laughs> no, but again, some of that was really separate. The reasons for those things separate from Christian science. Yeah. I, yeah. But. I think in, in, in my case, my mother's narcissism would have been there either way. Mm -hmm. Um, Christian science just sort of codified it, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Gave her a structure that justified the behavior that, like you said, might've, might've, could've, should've, would have been there anyways. Yeah. 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 And I think that was, I mean, my mom grabbed onto that structure and she tried to climb the sort of Christian science community ladder. I don't ever really remember that she wasn't involved really intensely in church. She was, she was the, like the clerk of the church, kind of that administrative position that's totally volunteer. She might've got paid 15 bucks a month or something, you know, um, we would go into the, the church office and she would, you know, do all the things and set me in the corner with a book. And that was really important. And I was to be quiet while she was doing her clerk things. And then she was, then she started working as a Christian science practitioner. Mm. Uh, and when she went into the room where she had like that sort of business, if you will, um, she was not to be disturbed and it did not, I mean, obviously I think if the house was burning down, that would have been one thing, but there was really nothing that was important in my life that was more important than her spending time doing whatever it was she did as a Christian science practitioner, you know, talk on the phone, do whatever prayerful treatments, you know, you can't see this people who are listening, but I'm making a face because <laughs> prayerful treatment, what, what the heck is that even, you know? Um, but yeah. And that only got more that way as time progressed. You know, she, she was so involved in church and it never took a backseat to her family I took a backseat to the church yeah and and I'm not angry about that that was it is what it is it's water under the bridge but it's not the way to raise a child yeah you know but at the same time you know you look at parents we we all have priorities and we 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 try um I I think she was so deep in 
wanting the religion to have all her answers that it it got in the way of like sort of normal parenting behavior mm-hmm. sometimes and other times she was fine <laughs> and, but yeah there were definitely decisions that she made that I don't think she ever regretted that I look back and I'm like holy crap I would never do that to a kid and you just you know how much anger can I carry I can't yeah I have that's what therapy is for yeah is to figure out how to let shit go sometimes but not to just sweep it under the rug you know um the uh, episode that you did with Emmy that she talked about internal family systems and the some of the the therapeutic methodology um, that she's that she was aware of and and had benefited from. I have benefited from that particular type of therapy as well. Mm. Um, and it's it's I'm not really good at explaining it. I thought she did a great job of explaining it. So if if that's a good jumping off point for if someone lands on this episode before that one, they should go listen to that one. <laughs> As there were she had some really good ideas about therapy in them. So Yeah. Yeah, I got I got a lot out of her episode too. Mm-hmm. I, learned, I learned a lot of things I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think it's interesting too. I watch, you know, I'm friends with a lot of people that I on Facebook, I'm friends with a fair number of people that I went to Principia with both high school and college. And it's remarkable how many of us are out mm-hmm. of Christian science. I only know, I really only know like a, a small handful of people that I think are still pretty radically involved. Most everybody that I knew when I was growing up they're they're out or they're doing things the way it seems like people are I don't want to say aloud but the the church has gotten a lot less clamped down yeah never ever ever mix medicine and prayer yeah I found I found a guardian article um when I was looking actually for a a logo (laughs) i found this guardian article um in which and this shocked me but it explains a lot they mentioned that in 2010 the church disavowed radical reliance like formally Mm -hmm. and that blew my mind i mean i was happy because it should be disallowed and it makes it'll make people healthier but there was a part of me that was like well then it's not christian science yeah what is it without this the whole medical thing what is it without that yeah but you know so christian science didn't make sense when it started it (laughs) didn't make sense 10 years later 50 years later 100 years later 150 years later it still doesn't make sense yeah if you try to diagram the sentences that she wrote that mrs eddie wrote (laughs) they make no sense they're they're it's just 
bizarre word so salad yeah. a, so it's so you're right that you know it was the behaviors not the philosophy not the religion that created this structure that we grew up in you know because the words make no sense which is why so many people fall asleep in church <laughs> yeah it makes no sense yeah i mean i'd love to know how many people let's say under 35 that are still in christian science i'd love to know how many of them get medical treatment i'm gonna guess a lot yeah probably a lot yeah, yeah. it seems like the people who aren't who are still dying these horrible person science deaths are, are older you know they're probably 50 and up because they had childhoods in the 40s 50s 60s and 70s when things were pretty radically different yeah yeah absolutely yeah absolutely um and and i think you've talked with other folks about the and and your own experience too right those child cases yeah that really, I think that was the corner that things that turned away from the way we could behave in the early 1900s, you know, um, and that all was sort of happening as medicine was getting better and better and better. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I, my husband and I will... will this is so weird we'll like sit at the dinner table and he'll be like how on earth could someone ever buy into this craziness and and I often I will say to him do you remember what medicine was like back then um I've actually I, one of my passions is reading medical history mm. and because it's stuff that I never learned growing up. And um, there's there's a kind of gross and amazing book called The Butchering Art. Um, and it's about the guy who finally figured out that we had to use antiseptics and how to keep the surgical um sort of theater that surgical area clean and how to get good medical results and you know it was it was not that different from Mary Baker Eddy's time that we were just starting to figure out how not to like infect patient after patient after patient yeah germ theory you know yeah yeah and um we went last summer we went to um in Maryland there's a uh, there's a museum all about civil war medicine. Oh, wow. Not just the civil war, but the medical things that happened as a result of huge, massive amounts of casualties all in one day. And um, the things that they learned because of the way they started setting up triage, which is how you judge is this emergency bigger than that emergency? And how do we know which patient to see first? Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it was fascinating to me to learn some of this stuff and to remember, okay, that wasn't all that different from what was happening in Mary Baker Eddy's world. And that's one of the reasons why Christian science still has a hold 
on other parts of the world. Yeah. Because they don't have access to the kind of care that'll that more and more and more and more of us have. So it's I'm not saying any of that to justify because it's still absolutely bananas to think <laughs> you can yourself well. But it still happens. Not just Christian science. Yeah. You know, what's the law of attraction? What's manifesting? What is all of that? It's the same magical thinking turned into, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to go to the doctor at the same time. You know, so what makes you well? Was it manifesting your wellness? I don't know. Or was it medical science? Yeah. Well, of course, medical science never gets the credit. It depends on the person, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. You and me, we'll give it credit. Yeah. But if you're in that mindset of, you know, the mm -hmm. magical thinking mindset, it's always going to be something magical, not scientific. Because exactly. that's not fun. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I know that you and I talked about, you know, I feel like I stayed in that world of magical thinking for a lot longer than I wish I had. Me too. Yeah. I I certainly accepted the possibility that this kind of alternative treatment or that kind of, you know, mindset stuff could make a difference. Um, and now I look back and I say, I had no proof of this. <laughs> I, you know, you just, you don't really exactly know why you trust people, but you trust them. And when you grown up in a, in a belief system like Christian science, your trust mechanism is fucked up. It doesn't work right. It takes a long time to rebuild that, you know? Yeah, you question your, your judgment that was definitely something I struggled with when I came face to face with, I don't think I believe in this anymore. I had a whole period of, well, I don't, I don't really trust my judgment anymore. Mm -hmm. If I believe this, what else am I believing or doing that's not based on rational thought, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, if I could wind time back, I would definitely um, walk away from more of those sort of cult-like things or magical thinking things but guess what I can't so yeah it is you know. what it is <laughs> so, yeah and I honestly I think a lot of why I found my way out of that is because I'm married to a really rational person who always was like what <laughs> why are you doing this are you sure do you have any proof that this is going to make any difference you know so finally, I started, you know, looking at things more critically and using critical thinking kind of processes instead of magical thinking. Critical yeah. thinking makes all the difference. Yeah. Science and what, you know, what's evidence-based and, and all that. And accepting a certain amount of uncertainty in your life, which is hard to do, especially coming from a very black and white 
background. You know, you have to accept that you don't, you're not going to know all the answers and nothing is perfect and nothing's going to work perfectly. And, and that's hard. That's hard to accept because you want these perfect solutions. And it's like, guess what? There aren't any, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so how it works. Yeah. So you go from being a kid and thinking Christian science is your perfect solution to a place where you realize that's not your per perfect solution. And what we really want is to find something to replace that yeah complete feeling of absolute sort of comfort with i know a b c black and white all the things and yeah i, I think that's that's a real mark of moving past it is figuring out that there isn't such a thing you know that what you grew up being told it, it it's just not even possible <laughs> isn't such a thing yeah sadly and it's okay to mourn that you know I had a very prolonged mourning period where I was just really sad I missed it I missed that certainty and that comfort you know yeah 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 you know it's funny um you've talked about that in the podcast a bit and I and maybe we've talked about it in the Facebook group too but I don't remember feeling that way mm. I remember being like, yay, I'm out. I'm liberated. <laughs> no more shame, no more guilt. I'm just me being me instead of trying to fit myself, you know, square peg into round hole. So. Yeah, it's so it, interesting, the different approaches. Yeah, for you, it was this wonderful liberating feeling. And I probably had some element of that. But if I if I can be honest and look back, I would say there was a deep river of sadness about losing this you know that's how it felt to me I, I had lost a thing I was mourning the death of a thing yeah 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 for whatever reason I don't know <laughs> I, I think everybody's pathways are legit yeah you know just it doesn't have to be the same for all of us it wouldn't be that wouldn't mm -hmm. be logical so yeah, yeah. um and and what we encounter once we leave changes us just as much as growing up that way changed us. That's life. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I feel very whole and I feel very present and very dialed in now because there's no, there's just no room for denial in my life anymore. Mm -hmm. So I feel very complete. And again, that might be an age thing. So I've gotten older, you feel more in yourself, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But I, I was saying to um, Wendy, the latest uh, interviewee, was which talking I can't about, wait to listen to. Yeah, she'll be up on Friday. Um, just feeling very awake. I feel awake. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. is a good feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, it doesn't, knowing things doesn't always make it easy to sleep <laughs> uh, but I would rather know the things yeah me too and pretend because pretending doesn't get you anywhere either and that's basically what Christian science is right pretending this isn't real that me that I'm not real that's pretending yeah okay five-year-olds pretend but it's it doesn't get you anywhere in real life and and we do have to face hard things. 
right? It sucks. You know, people die, we get sick, things happen, but we also get to really experience the good things. Yeah. And that's what I tell my kids now, because I want them to have a realistic approach to life that even though they've had a very safe, comfortable life, unlike me, <laughs> um, you know, that life can be really hard sometimes. You're going to go through really hard things that are very emotionally difficult or physically difficult or both. And that's that's what it is for everybody. Nobody gets out of this world without that. So <laughs> yeah. strap in, you know? <laughs> yeah. And how great for them to to have that, even though it's a lot to absorb, to to sort of have the realization of that in a loving household. Yeah. In a household where they can come to you and talk about mom, I don't, this is hard. You know, I didn't, that's why I went to therapy was because I didn't have that household to talk about. And I've certainly talked my husband's ear off about it over the years and friends and other things. But even though I did spend, I always say I spent a good 20 years just pretending I wasn't a Christian scientist, had never been. <laughs> because it, it just didn't, once I moved to the new town, I just washed that stuff out of my life yeah and then my parents got sick you know and and I'm grateful for all the people that were willing to listen to me when when the shit hit the fan and everything was really difficult and some of it was virtual help from other Christian ex-Christian scientists mm. in the Facebook group and some of it was family and some of it was friends because there was a lot to process yeah because it, it was hard. It was really hard. And it made me super angry. Um, and they've been gone for long enough now that like I can kind of look back and go, it made sense to be angry, but I don't have to, I'm not angry now. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing for people to know that I think anger is a perfectly reasonable response. <laughs> to these circumstances and that also when you're done being angry you will be because I was really angry for a long time and probably in the last three or four years there was just a part of me that was like I think I'm done with that I've been angry yeah. a lot and I've gotten I've gone through it and I've had my rage moments and I just don't really feel it anymore I think it's just sort of I'm done with it yeah you know yeah but the only, I think anyways, for me, the only way to get to where I am now was to go through all those feelings. Yeah. Because it clearly wouldn't have worked if I had just ignored them. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely my number one uh, takeaway <laughs> from Christian science and my experiences is denying feelings doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. Absolutely. And it just, it really just allows them to fester. They get, they, they're not prettier when you ignore them. They get worse. They yeah. get hard to deal with. They get entrenched, all those things, you know, and that's not what we were taught. We were taught, don't feel it. It'll go away. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. Anyway. That's not how we work. <laughs> yeah. 
it's not. This world of being human is, it's, it is about feelings. It, you know, that's part of being human. Yep. Yeah. As <laughs> is, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, all that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good place to kind of wrap up. Did, was there anything you still wanted to talk about or anything we haven't touched on yet? You saw my list, Hillary. <laughs> when you're ready for round two, I think we could probably make another hour happen. I think so, yeah. This is, this is like a good, I think you're right. We're kind of in a good a good moment to sort of do the last two questions. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So I'll start with, um, do you think, in your opinion, is Christian science a cult? I it, I think I've already sort of outed myself. I I think it's it's a cult masquerading as high demand, high control church. Um, it it's so. Mary Baker Eddy centric, even all this time later, um, that it can't be anything but a cult. You know, it, I read some stuff about Jim Jones, um, who is the the where we get the phrase "drink the Kool-Aid from," and and yeah. you know, he when you look at his the history of that church he really had a lot of good intentions going in and it just went off the deep end. Yeah. And that's basically what's happened. What happened with Christian science too. It went off the deep end. Mrs. Eddie went off the deep end. The whole thing just, it became this gross, weird, you know, unhealthy situation for the people in it. Yeah. And so, so on that note, do you feel like she was a true believer or a con artist or a little of both? You know, I, I do think she was a little bit of both. Um, I think about, so I kind of think of myself as a feminist and from that feminist perspective, what was it like to be a woman at that time in history? You were like the lowest of the low, she was, she had been through a lot of really unhappy stuff in her life. Mm -hmm. And she just wanted something to ground her, to make the world make sense to her. So she kind of developed something that helped her make sense of the world. It's like, it's like you write in a journal and you're just sort of free thought associating and you're trying to process stuff. And she took that and turned it into, you know, a book that had <laughs> 14 editions, none of which were exactly the same. I mean, you really have to read the history to understand why she wasn't a true believer forever. And I haven't read all the books, but I've read enough to realize, yeah. And then well, of course, what are you going to do? All of a sudden, these people revere you and think you're amazing and they want to give you money. And like, again, I it's it's human nature. It's something about her psyche that made her be, take that and turn it into this sort of, I'm the head of everything in, in your world kind of behavior. 
that picture that was in everybody's church her with the like fur cape thing yes on the balcony gray curly hair and like this beautific sort of god looking down on you and i know no christian science would ever say she was a god but she was like she sort of positioned herself as all-knowing so and so yeah she definitely bought into everything and took advantage and continued to used it to her advantage yeah not altruistic sort of mother Teresa take care of the poor behavior and I don't know that much about mother Teresa that's a whole again there's podcasts about that probably yeah she's she's got some controversy around her (laughs) exactly but you know Christian science was never about reaching out and doing good for the world as much as it was the cause the movement take care of the church and in the beginning it was take care of Mary Baker Eddy yeah so you know that's not benign that's malignant yeah so there you go you know what i think (laughs) (laughs) well it's it's been a lovely conversation really fascinating and and um glad we got to do this me too me too hey i sent you some like suggestions resources books that have been meaningful to me i would love if you would drop them show notes and and something because I don't know if they'll be meaningful to people but they've been a part of my journey and it might be helpful to someone so yeah absolutely I saw that and yeah so everybody look for look in the show notes there's going to be a list of books books and a couple podcasts there's some podcasts that I've found lately besides this one that (laughs) um, that I think help sort of help you figure out what's what's science and what's like not <laughs> so yeah it's because it's hard that's yeah. hard to figure out it even if you're is. not from christian science so yeah 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 but thank it, you for that I, resources yeah. are always very very helpful i know that i got a lot of help from from books and podcasts so yeah yeah, yeah those will be there well, I, yeah it has been great. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my story and yeah. chat with you. And, you know, someday we should have, like, you were talking about with somebody, like the gathering of everybody the who's gathering. been on the podcast or like a panel discussion. Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. For fun. Yeah. Um, All right, Barbara, we'll have a nice day and thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll, we'll do more of this, uh, Part two to come. That'd be awesome. Thanks, Hillary. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Leaving Christian Science. Disclaimer, I'm not an expert. I'm not a historian. I'm not a therapist. I'm just an ordinary, imperfect human who had the misfortune of being born into Christian science. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the host. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace professional, medical, legal, or psychiatric advice.